I, you know, from years of podcasting, I should remember that you always start recording early. And that way, if something funny is said, you've got it on tape and you can right. put it in the after notes. Of course, with this new endeavor, it's going to be really hard for me to edit any of these things because they're going to be so uh, quick. They're going to come so fast. Yeah. Mm. I think it's great that you're doing it. Welcome. I'm Lyle Troxell. I believe that the process of making is an integral part of being human. I create in a multitude of mediums. As a software engineer at Netflix, I make web applications for animation artists. In my shop at home, I make things in wood, electronics, and steel, recently really attracted to blacksmithing. I'm a photographer and a father. And in a former career, I helped people create high-tech art at UCSC. And while I was there, I was introduced to the idea of fun a day a January-based creation endeavor where you create a thing every day for a month. And given my 20 years' experience interviewing people, for 2022's Fun A Day, I've chosen a long-form interview podcast where I will explore the human condition, especially around how we thrive as humans while engaging with technology. Welcome to Lunch with Lyle. So I started out by calling my sister Adriana. Adriana, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm very honored and excited. I don't think you've ever interviewed me before. I know, and I've interviewed your entire family, like everyone around you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I felt left out. (laughs) I want to talk with you, Adriana, about connection. Um, Last month, somebody at work said, think of a word for the day of this most important for you. And as the meeting progressed and people were talking about words, I came up with connection with this idea that for years, I feel like I haven't made the time and effort to connect with people. And when I do feel connected with people, it gives a sense of peace and and fulfillment. And I think actually a big motivation for a lot of the ways we engage with technology has to do with our desire for connection. So do you have any thoughts on connection? But first, I'm going to ask you, before going into that, um, you're in your your room and you were just talking about audio quality in your room and we we're trying to deal with like tech stuff as we do this. And you were talking about that you have some weird sound that emerges late at night when you're sleeping? Yes, I do. And it's ironic that we're talking about connection because I actually just had to connect my phone here um, <laughs> so while you were talking. So yes, I have this noise that happens at night. I've lived in this house for a year and a half. And ah, sometime in the pretty early months of of living here, I started hearing this noise. I think actually it must have been last winter when we started shutting the windows because there's so much ambient noise coming from outside, you know, when the windows are open, that I didn't notice the noise until the windows were shut. And then I still didn't notice it if I was sleeping heavily or if there was activity in the house. But... Three in the morning, when I wake up and I can't sleep and all I want is to go back to sleep, I start hearing this. Oh, it's rhythmic. It's rhythmic. (laughs) And it drives me crazy. I've gone down to the basement. I've like searched everywhere at various times. And then for a while, I don't know, I'm not, I'm sleeping better, so I don't notice it or whatever. And then, um, recently my, one of my kids was home and, uh, and I, so I said, oh, Elias, you have good ears. Come in here. Help me figure this out. And he listened all around the room. And then he located the noise to be in the wall right above the outlet with the USB ports in it. So, Oh, you've got one of those outlets that has USB ports in it. Those are so mm-hmm. smart. Mm-hmm. But they make noise. Yeah. And I'm so done with it. <laughs> so have you pulled you it up? Here, no, because you're not here to help me. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you, you did, I'm assuming that this was installed when you bought the house? Yeah. Previous uh-huh. to us. Yeah. I love those little things. Um, we go into the tech of that, but basically it's got a, a switching power supply, which obviously has side effects of, of audio. Is yeah. it high pitch? Yeah. And, yeah. and Elias could hear it. Can Alejandro hear it? I think he can when I've pointed it out to him, but uh, okay. he had to like go close and really concentrate. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Like 
what you know what we can perceive is based on our you know our body's abilities to do things and yeah. i can't hear some of the high frequencies that my other family members can hear so maggie i have to when i get new light bulbs you know the led light bulbs and stuff i have to get maggie to listen to them because i can't hear if it's going to make an annoying whining sound mm. and she she'll listen and as soon as it of course whenever they fade out that's when they make noise you know right. halfway through so right um, right fascinating but of course it doesn't affect me at all except for it affects her and that of course affects me as well but if mom so, ain't happy hey you know i'm fully happy to help you uh unwire that thing great that'd be fabulous and actually i did the pitch wrong it's more like this it's um oh, it's it's just, like i can hear it in the tone that you make that it's very uh it doesn't clip on and off it's really like a fade in fade out exactly and those are the hardest things to hear like, because they uh, don't have yeah. a start. And to, right. to directionally find them with your ears, even tri- trickier. Exactly. Thank and God, I you've think got a young it son. comes and goes also, which is part of what makes it crazy. You think, oh, my God, am I really hearing that? <laughs> 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 All right. Enough about the weird perception <laughs> stuff inside the room. So important for sleep, though. Do you always wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Is that a regular? Oh, time? God, not. No, but much more than I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. Do you know why? It's, it's definitely gotten worse postmenopausally. So, in that sense, biology. Also, our mother and grandmother um, both struggled, and in the case of our mother, struggled with sleep. So, I sort of think of it as a inheritance biologically that way as well. Um, and as you know, I'm a big fan of Andrew Huberman's podcast, and so I've listened to him a lot about sleep, and and I worked on improving my hygiene quite a bit based on his recommendations and it hasn't totally eradicated it. So it's interesting. I mean, it's associated with depression as well, waking up at that hour. Um, but I'm in a pretty good place these days in terms of my mood. So I don't know. It's mysterious. We just had a conversation about the new year. We had friends sleep over Jen and Warren and Jennifer's having the same problem with sleep, and Maggie's mm. having the same problem with sleep. And Maggie's motivation is to hand, get sleep handled this year. She wants to sleep mm. seven or eight hours a night. Nice. She hasn't done that for years, and so we're trying to figure out techniques of wearing blindfolds and earphone mm. ear, earplugs mm-hmm. um, were suggestions. Mm-hmm. Connected to depression, what do you recommend to your clients when they have are in depression and sleep? Do you talk about sleep with your client, your customer cl- clients, customers, patients, patients? We say clients where I work. Clients, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's and it can feel like a bit of a vicious cycle, right? You know, you don't sleep enough, and then that's hard on your mental health, and then when your mental, when you're struggling with your mental health, and you don't sleep as well. Um, and you know, like anyone who has been up in the night not being able to sleep knows well, worrying about not sleeping does not help you get back to sleep. <laughs> but definitely, you know, I I share things I've learned like from Dr. Huberman and others. Um, and, and yeah. And then just, I mean, self-compassion, man, that's gotta be the start of it because it's like with other things with our mental health, you know, we can, we can beat ourselves up for not being good to ourselves, right? (laughs) We can drive ourselves in circles. So starting with self-compassion and acceptance, I think is really big. It's interesting. I went to a, um, solstice, event uh, a couple of weeks ago where we were invited to think about things for the new year. And what I decided was, and what I wrote down was waking playfully because I decided if I'm going to wake up, I want to wake up and have fun, Um, which fits with this fun a day theme really well, doesn't it? Um, Instead of, you know, waking up and bemoaning it or berating myself or wondering what I did wrong. What if I get up and do something fun, you know, and then until I'm sleepy again and go back to sleep along with, you know, practicing good sleep hygiene, et cetera. So that's my, that's my intention for this year. Well, to give yourself a little bit of comfort, this is not um, an uncommon thing. Uh, Warren or Jennifer, both historians in their own right, brought up that there were tinctures in, in ancient Greece to sleep. Mm. It's been a problem for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and speaking of the history of it, I, I don't know if you, and I can't tell you where I heard this, some podcast, there was a great um, piece about sleep, and they were talking about how in experiments where folks are, um, you know, are living without any electric light at all, and no clocks, how they'll, 
eventually um, adjust within a couple of weeks, I think, adjust to being asleep when it's dark and being awake, awake when it's naturally light, except it's very common for people to wake up after about four hours and um, get up and do something for a couple of hours. And then they mm-hmm. were citing literature about that too, about, um, you know, that it makes sense from an, also from an evolutionary point of view to have people get up sometimes in the night and check the fire and, you know, make See sure. If the wolves are close. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, so definitely. that's part of how I've been thinking about embracing it a little bit instead of um, thinking it has to be all continuous, you know? Yeah. In talking with you over the years, I have noticed that you seem to have held on to people in your lives and connect with people in your lives at a rate that I have not done. Mm. Examples of that would be um, like Jessica Mm. or um, friends from high school, Mm. you know, people that have been important um, in your life and you seem to kind of maintain some sort of relationship with them. Mm. Why and how does that happen for you? Mm. Is it work? Um, mm, sometimes it's, it's, I appreciate that observation. It used to, I used to feel better at it. Actually, it used to feel more natural. Um, I used to be quite a letter writer and, uh, I was, I had a number of people that I had, um, handwritten regular correspondence with. Was that pre-children or even after having children? Did you write letters? It continued somewhat after I had children as well. I would say it's mostly pre-email and cell Ah. phones. And it's rare now that I write a good, juicy, you know, pouring out my heart handwritten letter like I used to. When, When you were doing those letters... How frequent was it that you would write somebody? Would you write them around their birthday or would you write them regularly? How many people were you writing? Wow, that's a great question. So um, I I am not a keeper of things, so I don't have a record of it, unfortunately. Um, but so, boy, so Caroline Brumleaf and Ken Arez, you know, friends of mine from high school, um, and then friends in Mexico I used to write with, a uh, friend, uh, Paula von Weizsäcker from Germany, um, would they write back to you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My friend Jill. Uh, yeah. It, and so in terms of frequency, I think it was, there was an organic flow to it. I, mm-hmm. I, I would send a letter. At some point I would receive a letter and then it would be in my consciousness. Oh, I owe that person a letter. And yeah. it, it might be a week or it might be a month. And actually with more than one correspondent, um, this I particularly associate this with Caroline and with Paula, Paula in Germany, but also actually um, Araceli and Bernarda in Mexico. Uh, I, they would almost be like journal entries where I would start a letter, not finish it, pick it up again, say, wow, I can't believe it's been two weeks since I started this letter to you, that kind of thing. So it would be a little bit of a um, you know, progression over time. And at some point it would feel like, okay, I've written enough, it's time to send it. And mm-hmm. It would go off, yeah. So that was definitely a big piece of maintaining connection for many years. So I remember dad would um, give me a hard time for not writing people. Mm -hmm. He was an avid writer. Mm -hmm. Long letters to people. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. After he passed, I remember getting copies of parts of letters from people that he'd written to that they'd kept. Mm. And I remember I have a little bit of like disappointment myself, shame, whatever those useless things are about not <laughs> not doing that. I have in front of me, right over here, I found the other day, two postcards from when I traveled over 20 years ago to Europe. And I took pictures of pretty things and printed them and got intent of sending them to people that were important to me. And I still have mm. these letters. I wrote them out and everything, taught, brought them back, never mailed them. Mm. So it's like I almost have this like, kind of odd block about writing. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been concerned about my own handwriting. So you did that, mm. and you think that you slowed do- down on that because of email and text and phones and being so easy? I think so. Which it's ironic, isn't it? Because it ought to mean we're more connected. And certainly there, uh, it's completely possible to write an email in the way that I used to write letters. But I don't very much. Every now and then I do. What, when do rare. you... 
when are you motivated to write? When, when, the last time you wrote somebody something, what, what was it? And did you do it in email form or paper? Uh, it was an email, and it was to my son Morgan, who's living in Taiwan. Um, and it was we'd had a phone con. Well, it was a wasn't a phone conversation. It was a I don't know WhatsApp or Facebook conversation. Um, and it's thirteen hours different. So, um, the so somebody's follow tired. up, somebody's <laughs> tired. Yeah. Although he and I both are sometimes up at odd hours, which is actually, it's great because sometimes I get to talk to him at four in the morning. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I know who's up. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, I was left after the conversation. I was left with a, a disquiet, um, like this feeling of, uh, I felt a little uncomfortable with myself and I, I was, holding on to some feelings that I, I wasn't understanding. And, and this for me is actually where correspondence has been really rich in my life. I think I am a person who processes in writing and, um, I, I, I didn't have conscious understanding of what it was I wanted to communicate until I sat down and worked on writing it out to him. And I did that in an email and it felt really good to do that and, um, and sent it off to him so yeah. it ac- actually, the writing allows you to access a different way of you thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Podcasts mm-hmm. do that for me. Mm. I'm able to have a different kind of conversation when I'm on mic, when I'm thinking about an audience or when I'm thinking about how the conversation is flowing and what's left to get to and that kind of thing that happens in my brain when I, when I do conversations after yeah. 20 years of doing this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I could think with writing. I guess what I do when I really want to think through a problem is I will pitch it like an audio podcast. Maybe not even record it, talk to myself in the car verbally. Mm. And then after that, I'll write it down. That's how I do co- any kind of conference talk or any kind of presentation. I need to write something up first. Mm. I'll, I'll do it verbally live and then record that maybe or do it a couple times until I kind of know what I'm ta- saying and then I'll put it in writing. Mm. But you can actually think differently in writing. Why is that? What, 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 mm. what triggers that a different way of thinking in writing? That's such a great question. You know, I, I think a behaviorist would probably say that it, it was a it's a learned pattern, you know. Um I don't I don't know. I I I definitely have worked that way since elementary school at least. You know, I have one thing I did keep is, is my journals and I have journals from when I was really young. Um so I think a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. Writing practice. Mm-hmm. You write plays too, collaboratively with other people and, and by yourself as well, yeah? I haven't for a while, but I have in the past, yes. Mm-hmm. That was a very yeah. tell. This is why I like video. That yeah. was a very telling response when you did that. Oh, you, what did I do with my face? <laughs> you made a sound with your mouth and you kind of had a, maybe a, if I was really into this, I'd say micro expression of sadness or regret uh, or some kind of emotion around it. Is there some yeah. emotion around not writing? Yeah, well, I would say not having an active creative life as much as I would like. Yeah. She says as she's ha- holding a banjo, which by the way, you've been doing really good at keeping it quiet. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm actively <laughs> muting it. So it doesn't, it's otherwise the, it would be talking back. It would be very, I can feel it wanting to participate in the conversation. Those things, if, <laughs> if we were releasing this as a video, it would be unacceptable at this point. Everybody would be like, why is it you playing the instrument? <laughs> Because all I'm watching is holding his pen. So and the only so, reason I'm still holding it is because this, it's so complicated to get the strings and the strap all, you know. <laughs> so you have been doing artistic endeavor. You've been learning how to play the banjo. How long have you been working on it? It sort of depends on how you measure it. Um, oh boy, so how many years ago now? Maybe like eight years ago or so. Um when I was up in Maine with Bruce's family, so my former husband's dad, we were visiting, uh, along with our three children, and we were leaving, and he came out with this banjo that I'm holding right now. Um, his name's Sam. And he said, oh, here, I want you to have this. And I was surprised, and I was moved by that, um, because it was for me. It wasn't like for all of us or for the kids mm-hmm. or, 
oh, here, can you take this home so that you guys all have this? I really felt like he looked at me and was like, I want you to have my banjo. I can't play it anymore because of the arthritis. And I was so just really touched by that. And I, I felt a little bit like I'd been given this legacy, you know. Mm. Um, and then another time we saw him and he said, oh, here, I have these banjo books for you, you know. And, um, and you hadn't showed interest in it or had you showed interest not in it? Not that I was him? aware of, no. And, in fact, I don't even know that I ever heard him play it. I don't even know that I knew he had a banjo. Like maybe I'd heard him talk about it, but it wasn't, it was a big surprise to me. And then um, I, I sort of was self-teaching myself a little bit from one of his books, but it was intermittent. And then I, yeah, go ahead. Do you want to say well, something? I, I want to ask you just to give, give some context for everybody, including myself. Yeah. All three of your kids and your former husband all play stringed instruments. Yes. Uh, yeah, to one extent or another. Yes. They all play you, instruments. Yeah. And as I recall, as kids, we had instruments a lot. We had our otter harps, which is a pretty easy instrument to play. Um, I think you got relatively good with recorder and then piano, of course, you took lessons and, and you played harpsichord as well at one point. So you're not, you're not immune to the experience of playing musical instruments. I'm not, but I never got really good at any of that. You know, I, I was, I, I was a dabbler mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, part of definitely what was motivating me to want to learn an instrument was so that I could play music with my family as an adult now, um, with my kids. Um, so they all played music and I didn't. And yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've, a lot of the close people in my life have been musicians, you know, our sister Marina and one of my bestest long-term friends, Emily, um, is also a singer. And so I was just always kind of part of my identity was that I was not a musician, unlike these mm. other people who were musicians. Of course, um, you're a singer and you have a beautiful voice. Mm. So you've always been able to participate in the music if, if vocals were involved. Yeah. And I, I love that. You know, I love that way of being with people. In the broader family, I'm an acclaimed and not musician. So I don't get it. Damn. <laughs> now, I think that picking up the banjo as the one to choose, that's a little hard. Isn't the banjo pretty hard to play? It is hard. I find it very hard. Yeah. I've heard it's like the hardest instrument to play, but maybe that's just... Well, there's a lot going on. It's like it's a it's a rhythm instrument and it's a string instrument. And so you have to really... You have to, I started tapping my foot as I was saying that. You have to really have the rhythm. And then there's a lot going on with your both of your hands. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I love the sound of it. You know, I love... Part of the story for me actually goes... One of my dear friends, um, um, Hillary, here in town... She uh, grew up in Virginia and um, years ago loaned me this uh, recording, a tape, a cassette tape, that's how long ago it was, of an Appalachian um, Appalachian banjo player and singer um, named uh, Sheila K. Adams. And uh, oh my gosh, I just fell in love with her. And so uh, that sound just spoke to me very deeply, the his old ballads and just the oh, yeah. warmth kind of and oh, oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So there's a number. And then, you know, there's a, a number of women banjo players that I've really admired. Rhiannon Giddens um, and, uh, oh, well, other people. Anyway, so yeah, it was, Steve, that, that's part of it. Speaking of fun or waking up joyous, whatever, mm-hmm. that, that whole idea, Steve Martin has this great line that it's basically impossible to play a banjo and be sad. <laughs> It has, this, it has such an upbeat kind of funness, right? I think, I think people who are out of work, instead of giving them money, we should give them a banjo. Because it's so happy. They can just go home and, did you get a job today, do you? Nope. Doesn't matter, though. Do you find that the banjo brings you emotion? Um, yeah. I mean, it's so funny that you say that too, because I often notice that I am drawn to minor chords. Mm. Um, Classically sad things. Yeah. yeah, Right. So, and a lot of the old ballads, you know, like, uh, I am a poor wayfaring stranger. Those aren't the brightest, happiest songs. And those tend to be the songs that I often will go to. But do you, do you know that song on banjo? Um, I, yeah, I do. You want to give it a shot? I, 
I'm actually not tuned to it right now. Oh, so, so you I also could. have to tune per per song. <laughs> Don't tune for the song. It's fine. I, the banjo has also that level. Yeah. So percussive and string, the both hands are busy, but yeah. also you have to tune per song. Why is that? Well, I mean, you can do that really with any stringed instrument, but it's part of what's really cool about the banjo. And I, and I'm such a beginner about this. So. It, so almost everybody starts with an open G tuning, and that's what I started with. And the first few years that I was messing around with it, I mean, it, w- it was very on again, off again at the beginning, right? And uh, I would only, I could only tolerate the concept of the open G tuning. I couldn't, it was like exploded my brain to think of having to do anything else. But then, um, thanks to our Uncle George Davis, um, I started to appreciate how by changing the tuning, it's, it's probably hard to say this in just words, but you can basically be more efficient with what you're doing with your fingers, right? So depending on what you're playing, a tuning can mean you have less to do right. with your fingers. So the open right. G, you can play all the, I know all the core, you know, I can move up and down the neck and do all the chords, but it's always involving, not always, but often involving all four of my fingers right. uh, to change all the pitches on all the strings. Um, what I'm in right now is uh, it's called C modal. So I've got two C's, a low C and a high C. I've got two G's, this um, drone string, and then the middle string is, is a G, and then I've got a D. So um, with just one or two fingers, I can make chords because um, I've already got basically a full chord. Yeah in the way that it's tuned yeah and this is not just like using a capo where you're actually changing all you're shifting the whole instrument this is much more complex of actually tuning it to be openly a different set yeah doesn't that mean though if you if you if you learn an open g all these chords and stuff then if you retune the instrument that fingering is all different yeah yes so (laughs) that sounds complicated too that's what you mean by breaking the brain yes exactly exactly but it's not you know like so right now the d and the g are both in the regular open g tuning and so some of what i know still applies like this um the only in the it's it's too hard to do without a visual yeah (laughs) but basically you uh, yeah and the, the more you do it the more it makes sense like anything else yeah 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 well, one of the things a, a podcast needs is a theme song. And I was wondering if you could just give us a theme song for this series of episodes. Right. So it's, you know, it's so funny that you brought up that thing of the Steve Martin quote, because I, um, I was thinking about two different things. And this is why I was, I was in C-modal, because I love the sound of C-modal. And because I was just in a conversation with Molly um, Hartwell this and, and Cece Fleming this week and Cora, um, uh, and and discovered that Molly, who has also been learning some banjo, also loves C modal tuning, and um, I thought that was a sign that she and I both love this. And then I was playing around with two different things: one that is a minor sound and one that is a major sound. And I was thinking, this is a New Year's, you know, joyful kind of message. We should probably do the happier, brighter sound. But I also really love this minor sound <laughs> so i don't know you pick <laughs> i say we go with the minor i mean as much as i as much as the idea of doing something every day fun a day kind of concept mm-hmm. is inspiring and motivational i think that it actually also just leads you to go oh you can you know do something that you're passionate about and keep on doing it and the the trick for me is really the motivation to do something not necessarily that it needs to be fun yeah that is yeah. really more about tricking yourself into doing something mm. um so the and and I intend to have meaningful, interesting conversations. So serious is fine. Sure, great. Well, yeah. that really resonates resonates for me as well because, um, uh, you know, f- fun. I mean that 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 word is a light word, but but joy for me contains all the colors of the rainbow, and there's definitely great joy for me in the, in the, the just the way my body feels when I hear that chord is deeply joyful you know it's not light but it is very satisfying so yeah so unlike you i haven't been recording myself hardly at all for my whole life and so i am a little self-conscious so we'll see how this goes (laughs) playing this for you
That was lovely. That's great. It's perfect. Is it? And the I microphone so- is horrible. It is. <laughs> it's just, oh, God, yeah. I need uh, better sound. Yeah. It's, I think it's just about the microphone is. Yeah. Yeah. I also, it's, I'd also like to do another take if we could. Yeah, do another take. Okay. I'm also thinking, like, is there some way to get you in front of a microphone that has a better quality so mm. we can get a good recording of it and then, you know, get it to me mm. somehow? I'm sure if Elias was there, we could do it easily. Bruce but. Elliott could do that for me, I bet. You want to do that today with him? To, <laughs> Sorry, or this week, some point? To, I don't He might be available. He might be up for it. I mean, he, he would oh, probably be, so, be up be for so it. Great. I'll ask him. Yeah. But, but do another take. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, let's do yeah. another take. I also need to credit George Stavis because he's the one not only – so during the pandemic for like – and this is the answer to the question of how long have I been. I've been really, really regularly practicing and taking a weekly remote lesson with George for – about a year and a half. And before that, I had a little stint of infrequent lessons with a really great banjo player in Vermont. Um, that, but that stopped with the pandemic. So anyway. So during the pandemic, you got in touch with George Davis. Now, yeah. some people will not know who George Davis is. So let's go ahead and talk about this. Yeah. When you were three, you lived on a large hippie pl- Younger. Area plantation. Younger. Younger. Two. Two. Very young. Yeah. Pre-two. I mean, you know. Yeah, one, I think, is actually when we moved in there. Yeah. Prior to me being born, because you're a little older than me. Yeah. um, Our father managed a band called Ogunuki, which was a Santa Cruz. What kind of music would you say? I call it bluegrass rock. Bluegrass rock. Yeah. And the entire band lived on this property called Plantation, which is about throwing distance from where I live (laughs) now. It's a great piece of property in in Brookdale, California. And um, big house and tents and and uh, lots of places to live, a lot of people. And they were playing music all the time. And that was your early childhood, hanging around a rock band. Yeah. And George Davis, one of the founding members, is an amazing banjo player. Yes, he is. And it's been, speaking of connection, such a sweet connection for he and I. In fact, the first, I think it was the first lesson we had. If it wasn't the first one, it was one of the first lessons we had. Happened to be on Father's Day. And, um... Mm. And he and I shared in that lesson our grief because he has lost children in his life and I have lost my dad, our dad. And it was a very profound and, and beautiful thing to spend a little time with him on Father's Day and, and feel the way that he is, um, you know, an adopted uncle slash father figure for me. So, yeah. So, so for you, Banjo, it does have sadness, right? And it's root and it's core. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I honestly, I, I think it's funny that Steve Martin says that because there is the twanginess is, has a silliness and a lightness to it, but the, what is it about it? There's this yearning. There is a yearning sound in the banjo that I do not think is, is all fun and games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's funny. The, the song that you brought up is like a journey and a not having a home and a yeah. travel and all that stuff is pretty serious yeah. things. And it's almost like, you know, the, the joy of the banjo sound has this core depth of like missing and needing and exactly. wanting and journey and all exactly. that stuff. And right. it's almost like the relief from that, but it's an underpinning. Right. Well, yeah. and it's, you know, it's, it's African roots, this, this instrument of, you know, what was used to be a gourd covered with a skin is a very um, uh, old uh, concept that came with people from Africa under extremely adverse circumstances. So I think in that way, too, it's sort of honoring the, the, the human suffering and the finding joy and resilience um, in response to that is part of the history of the banjo for sure. All right, take a second shot. All right. All right, let's
I got really anxious that time. I don't know why. Um, can I try it one more time? Yeah, of course. Okay. Let's see. I keep sort of changing up what I'm doing too. Um, first one was the best one. I don't All know right. why I get so anxious. I, it's funny. Speaking of connection, though, I, I, I just think it's so interesting that the thing that draws me to want to make music most is wanting to connect with other people. But I get so anxious when I play with other people. You know, mm. like, it's, yeah. I have definitely sat around the fire when, you know, bonfire when somebody's got a couple people have instruments and they're playing mm. music and really wanted to also participate mm -hmm. right and i get and i try my voice and mess up or i do mm -hmm. my i do a drum because at least i can keep a, a beat and mm -hmm. feel like sometimes that that succeeds for me but i know what you mean by the connection aspect mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. that's what i love yeah and then you get intimidated by the people being there are you thinking about other people while you're playing unlike when you're by yourself um yeah, I think just fear, awareness of my own limitations, not wanting to mess up the groovy vibe, you know, like, um, and, and having had the experience also of, of disappointing my kids of not being like, it's like, I'm the beginner instrumentalist. And so I played music a little bit with my kids successfully, but they get impatient with me because I'm not as good as them, <laughs> which is, you know, not fun for anybody. So, well, of course, you know, at, as a, child uh, myself i can say uh, as a you know a, a daughter myself i can say that uh, as kids we tend to be hardest on our parents probably <laughs> um, it's easy yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well yeah. it'd be it'd be lovely if you went to try to get a good microphone to record that okay. i would i would be very pleased i will cool. i will use the first recording today to introduce this podcast okay so it's gonna be live um for however many people listen okay okay good <laughs> wow well, it's really interesting having a conversation with one's sister in a forum that's kind of an unknown audience because, you know, mm -hmm. for Geek Speak, the audience was always very clear. And for the mm -hmm. for the um, the podcast I do with Michael Lopp, the important thing, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear. He has a big audience. We talk about management and leadership and Tech Valley stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the We Are Netflix podcast is all about the Netflix culture. So mm -hmm. it's very clear what we're talking about, the audience stuff. Mm -hmm. This is much more like I want to connect with people that I love and admire and, mm -hmm. you know, and make something during the process an artifact. So when you bring up Molly and mm -hmm. George and all these names that, of course, you and I know exactly what we're talking about, it's kind of like, well, I guess they'll listen and they'll enjoy it. I know. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't matter if it's anything else. As know. I was, yeah, as I was saying that, I was holding those same questions. I wasn't really sure. Like, should I just say some person? But you're my brother and you know these people and it's relevant. <laughs> yeah. I know. Felt uncertain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Though you've stopped doing the regular writing, which you think did help you connect with these people over a long time and keep your connections with them, have have those connections just become persistent? Like the people that you mentioned you used to write to, you're not writing to anymore, but do you still feel connected with them? Do you know what's going on in their lives? Do they know what's going on with your lives? It varies. Um, yeah, much less than I wish. I do not have regular communication with most of the people I just mentioned, actually. Oh, really? Um, I still f feel a sense of love and connection about all of them. And if I'm geographically near to them, I will look them up to be with them if I can. Um, right. But I, and I, and I'm, I kind of am allergic to Facebook. So I very rarely am on there or keeping up with what people are up to that way in social media. So, yeah. I'm not as connected as I would like. And, I mean, just to go back to where you started, though, I do really value those long-term friendships. And, mm -hmm. and part of what is beautiful about a long-term connection, and this is how it is for Jess and I, who you mentioned, Jessica Fry, is uh, 
even who also was uh, hung out in the band because her her father was one of the performers of the band. Yes, um, one of the Oganuki babies. Two and three, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's kind of my big sister. We used to share a room um, at the Oganuki times, um, along with Courtney, who I need to mention too. If I'm going to mention Jess, um, but anyway, Jess and I have often remarked over the years that we can go a big chunk of time with no communication, and then it just feels like we drop right back in. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one of the hallmarks of of that kind of, of making a connection, deep yeah. relationship, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's akin to cousins or family that are distant that you do um, have that kind of re- ability to reconnect any time, and it's meaningful and useful. And of course, big time events happen, right? A death or a marriage, mm-hmm. people seem to see each other again, and you reconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I've always kind of been. I've been impressed, less jealous with your connection with Jess, for example, is a great example with Courtney, right? Mm-hmm. I knew them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but your connection with them seems so much more uh, vibrant and alive than mine. You know, my relationship with Jess, when I see her, we'll talk about you, right? Because mm-hmm. we, of course, live in the same town, so mm-hmm. I do see her sometimes. Um, but it was really re- remarkable that it's generational. It really is family in the sense like your daughter help Jess move when she was out here, right? Yeah. And I'm like, you know Jess is moving? How do you, oh, right, through your mom, okay. And of course, she was very excited to see her. And that definitely feels like family. At some yeah. Level. yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting too, though, because as you're saying this, I'm. it's reminding me of an experience I had uh, years ago in college uh, where in which um, a friend said to me, do you know that you talk to just about everyone like you're coming on to them. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? It, it made me, of course, self-conscious, but also just sort of think about how do I interact with people? And, and the sense that, um, I, you know, I think part of it is a family culture thing, honestly, that, that came a lot from our dad and being in the theater and, you know, just being that, um, being warm and vibrant, like you said, and, and charismatic and connecting with people, um, is something that I think we really were brought up to do. (laughs) Um, so that's probably a piece of it. Uh, But I think the, thing in a certain sense that I think has taken work, which refers back to something you asked earlier, is also came from a friendship in college. My friend Emily Browder um, said to me at one point, she said, I know you're my friend, but I also sort of feel like you're everybody's friend. What makes me special? And and it made Mm -hmm. me realize that I wanted that. I wanted depth. I didn't want to just have warm, superficial connections with everybody. And that was a conscious decision, I think, to really decide, I'm going to cultivate this relationship. And when when I'm needing support, I'm going to call on this person. Not to the exclusion of others, but as a form of investment. In a, and that man has that paid off. I mean, she's still her daughter is my goddaughter. She's still um, a very, very dear, close friend to me. And I, I, I remember making that decision. Yeah. Maggie, my wife, um, mm. for other people, you know who Maggie is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maggie worked with dad at the radio station um, mm-hmm. in the last years of his life and you know, was kind of a, a right-hand person to him managing the, the station, the radio, radio station KSP. And she uses this term that um, he communicated with people like he could get into anybody's pants in the room. That was the way she, yeah. something like that, some exactly. kind of phrasing that is yeah. kind of sexualizing it, right? But yeah, it's, yeah. And it's, it, so I totally know what you're talking about. I, I can see yeah. why one of your friends would say that, like, you're coming on everybody. Yeah. There's this kind of genuine quality that we have, you know, mostly from Peter, I would say that was an easy way to say that to our, our mm-hmm. father, where we can be really friendly and inviting and, and intense and vulnerable and really get to people. You know, it's a charismatic thing. And if someone judges it, it does look a little bit uh, manipulative, like, you know, coming on to somebody that's kind of mm-hmm. like a, a trying to get your way or whatever. It happens naturally. I, I, genu- I feel genuine the entire time I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And you're right that it's not, for lots of people, it feels extremely intimate and you know connection i make make quick friends really quickly but 
it's floating and and it it's not like the kind of deeper connections you can make when right you in passing when you just phrased that you said something about when you'd call upon them right where mm. when you need something when i need something who are the people we reach out to that's mm-hmm. a very different type of person mm-hmm. and this this mm-hmm. is reminiscent to when dad was dying and in his last months or so where we'd have conversations with him of like cuz we you know mom was having trouble maintaining the support necessary so we were pulling in friends to help take care of peter and spend time with him and mm-hmm. say goodbye as well but during that time there was like real decisions on who would be invited in to do yeah. that everyone yeah. wanted to see him cuz he's very you know well known and well loved by lots of people but who were the people that were really close versus the people that w- felt they were close and of course that's a judgment thing it's not like you weren't loved if he weren't there in the last days of his life or whatever mm-hmm. Have you figured that out? How, when you decide that a person that you are friendly and connected with, you decide to make more investment to? How do you decide that? Hmm. Or is that's, it conscious? That's such a great question. Um, <laughs> so I have this women's group that's been gathering almost weekly um, since Cora was two and... 15 uh, years or so. Thir- more, right? Yeah, more. 17 years, yeah. How old are they? They're 20. They're 20. So 18 years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we ca- we decided to cap our group at five. Uh, we had a couple people rotate out and a couple people join, but it's been pretty steady for, I don't know, at least 10 years. And um, that was, in a way, it was a pragmatic decision because the way we would, it was a support group, you know, the, the way that we would use our time was to divide it among the people present and we were all people with children and busy lives. And, but it also had to do with the feeling of how big does this intimate circle need to be? You know, for the people that I'm going to really just let it all hang out. And, um, and it felt like that was the right number. So I've had that, that circle really consciously maintained. And, and really we, we found each other because we were raising children together, you know, and, and and we obviously liked each other. We weren't the only people we knew, but, um, that was a decision to prioritize these, this particular set of people in my life and, um, and make a commitment to regular intimacy, you know, Mm -hmm. emotional intimacy. Uh, and then, yeah. And then there's, a few people from college and a few people from high school that I've really made sure to hold on to. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, just even this year, I've actually been cultivating a new relationship. It's, it's an interesting, there is a choice element to it, you know, like this is an interesting person. And I, I, it's someone that I've, um, known in this community for at least five years, but you know, and we would say hello to each other. We might have a couple minute conversation if we ran into each other on the sidewalk. Um, but it was never going to go beyond that if I didn't make that conscious decision to say, would you like to meet for a cup of tea? <laughs> you know? Or would you like to take a walk? It sounds like you you definitely had actions focused around the connections you've made. Like the writing letters was actions to continue writing letters. Like you actually spent some time investment in it. The women's group, it sounds, it was very conscious that you needed mm-hmm. support and you wanted to give other people support and mm-hmm. have a group. And that, I mean, your women's, I mean, you've gone through deaths and you've gone through divorces mm-hmm. and all of you have been supporting each other the entire time. That's a pretty, I would say that's probably rare in this day and age, at least mm-hmm. in California, I think it's rare. I don't know if it's rare in New, New Hampshire to have a, a tight group like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes repetitive work, right? Meeting regularly. Mm-hmm. What's What, every month or... weekly weekly mostly weekly it's just an hour weekly yeah and we have grandchildren coming now (laughs) really well do you cycle through who who hosts um well it's all on zoom for the last couple years (laughs) (laughs) but we used to uh it varied it was mostly about who had a good private space in their house and there's a kind of a joke that's based on truth which is one of our members when she would come home or get off the phone or off the Zoom or whatever, her daughter would always say, who laughed? Who cried? (laughs) It's fantastic. There was always some of both. (laughs) 
Well, I think that sounds like a good recommendation is try to get a small group of people committed to supporting each other. You know, lots of cultures in the United States, lots of subcultures in the United States use church for that. Yes. Yes. Where they weekly meet, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and spend some time with some people and think about the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. We never had that. We had theater when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't cultivated that. I don't think I've cultivated that at all. Uh-huh. Well, of course, uh, you do a lot of podcasting with people. <laughs> yeah, but it's not it's not intimate support from people. I mean, yeah. definitely the group, of, you know, the group of people that I did Geek Speak for, you know, almost 20 years with are, are close and I can call upon them for anything. But there's been mm-hmm. there's been drama and challenges through that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there are in most they're always most that's part of relationships. That's part of connection. Right. I mean, but like, that's what they say that the. The the relationship that has rupture and repair is the stronger relationship. You you actually we haven't talked about your profession. Will you give us a lowdown on what your profession is? Sure, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm the associate director of children's services at a community mental health center. So you are focusing on people's mental well being all the time. That's what your job is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you give recommendations of people having support groups? Is that like a mm-hmm. clinical thing to do? That's interesting you would say that. Boy, this, that could, this could be hours more conversation um, because we're in a moment locally, regionally, nationally, I don't know about internationally, but certainly it's widespread that we are in a moment of a lot of mental health need and a real shortage in terms of mental health workforce. So one of the ways we've been experimenting with meeting that challenge in my workplace is by increasing the amount of group work, which is essentially can be uh, one model of that is a support group. Um, Just to try to, to handle the load. Yeah. Because of numbers. Yep. Yeah. But interestingly that you would ask this because it's a, uh, though this is my profession and I, and I'm proud to have it be my profession and I love it. I also ironically have a, a bias that mental health ideally shouldn't be, or shouldn't exclusively be a profession. It should be part of being a human um, and, uh, so this kind of informal support group model makes a lot more sense to me. The, the professionalization of it makes certain people experts and other people mm. recipients of care. And there is a certain amount, there can be a feeling of artifice in that. Um, and, and there's also benefit to it. I mean, the placebo effect is very powerful. <laughs> we know that. And going to an expert in and I of itself. I thought this week. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's lots of things. Not that there isn't value in the training and the models of care and all of that, too. So I, I don't mean to knock my profession, but I also think that um, it's a very natural human function to to give and receive support. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I, and so I think you know, workforce issues aside, I think it would be wonderful if our culture um, in, embraced that more and, you know, really had it be a, an ongoing part of what it is to be human. Damn, you know, instead of all the other things that we prioritize. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you're kind of not that into Facebook. Um, it's so funny because it feels like one of the things that's happened since Facebook's emerged is we do have weird I want to say weird. I'm going to judge it as mm-hmm. an oddity in human experience. Connections with people, mediated connections through corporations of even if you were to send letters with your friends and have deep, intense conversations of letters, rarely would there be the amount of photos and video clips in those letters showing what it's like in their lives, mm-hmm. what the people around them look like, what the places they are look like. So we've switched over to connection through photos, through Instagram and through Facebook of people that we knew trans, you know, we went to high school with at one point. We maybe didn't even know them really well in high school, but afterwards, because they're the same year as us, we're friends with them in Facebook. Mm-hmm. And now we see pictures of them going to Egypt or whatever. Right? <laughs> and there's this, there, there's more connection, more superficial, I would say, more superficial connection through than there ever has been with everybody you've ever met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't you like Facebook? What's wrong? 
um, I guess it's that superficiality. I don't know. I mean, really, it was more of an, it was, it wasn't a conscious decision. It happened for me, uh, really around the 2016 election. There was so much ugliness and it just made me sick and like, I didn't want to participate. And so I just dropped out. But then even after that, I just, you know, I, every now and then I dabble in it. It just doesn't make me feel good. It's not how I want to be spending my time. I feel like if if I want to invest some time in connecting with people, I would rather write a letter or pick up the phone or take a walk with someone or sit by myself and play the banjo. You know, I, there's just so many other things that I would rather do with my time. I don't feel good about myself when I spend not about myself. It's not a judgment because it's not a intellectual cognitive kind of, or it's not a, um, it's, it's not an ethical decision. I'm not, I didn't conclude it was wrong and therefore I, I shouldn't do it. I, I just don't, I get a sick feeling in my stomach if I do it very much. It's somatic. <laughs> I'm allergic basically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Adriana, thank you for doing this inaugural episode with me. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun talking with you. Yeah. I have no idea if anyone will ever like this, but well, our loved ones yeah, will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good oh man, hopefully we didn't hurt anybody's feelings, right? <laughs> oh no, I don't think so. I'm listening. I'm listening for that stuff all the time. <laughs> well, I'm I'm honored to have been asked to do the inaugural episode, and I I loved talking to you. Always Are you going to do something uh, creative every day for January? Well, you, you know, I, when I heard you were doing it, I thought I could play my banjo every day, but I already pretty much play my banjo every day. Um, but, you know, maybe what I'll do, oh boy, if I say this, then I have to do it. Well, maybe I'll try to make up a little song every day because I have never written any music. This little fooling around thing that I just did is basically based on something. You mean the awesome theme song we now have for this podcast? Yes. (laughs) This podcast's awesome official theme song is based on a little thing that George showed me, you know, like I don't have a framework for making up music really. I I wrote songs for my children. Each of my children, I, I wrote a little song for them when they were born, but not um, since then and not instrumentally. So, yeah. All right. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a little song every day. Okay, good. Well, how are you going to, how are you going to celebrate that? Are you going to record it or are you just going to do it and make a note, title it or something on a piece of paper? Does it I have to be list. recorded? No, you don't have to record it, but I found that having some form of list where you fill it in every Documenting day is very helpful. It in some yeah, way. Just yeah. Have a name for it or some signature or a picture that represents that you did it. Something like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Yes. I don't know how, but I'll... <laughs> I will track oh, it. I will document it. That's And awesome. I'll put it on Slack. How about that? Sure. We, okay. we uh, as a family, have decided to kind of switch away from Facebook, or at least Adrienne and I have. And we're using <laughs> Slack for our family group meetings. <laughs> we're having so much trouble getting the rest of the family to do this that we're still using Facebook Messenger and <laughs> side-channeling, hating it the entire time. <laughs> but, you know, I see, a, I see a great little clip that Marina, our sister, uh, puts up or something. And I'm like, well, I'm, I, wanna, I don't want to miss this. So yeah. whatever it takes. Right. We, I've, I think we've done better in the last couple of years since COVID, connecting as a closer family. You know, our, our mother slash extended aunts and uncles and all that group. We seem to be doing a bit better in that, which is good. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you've helped participate in making that happen. Thank you for doing mm-hmm. that. Likewise. When, when the kids were young, you talked about writing uh, songs. I don't write fi- fiction normally. I'm, I'm mm. very, I, I normally am like all my podcasting is all like factual, like let's find out what you're thinking and doing and what's the, the world truth. like. Yeah, the scientific <laughs> side of me. Um, but when the kids were young, sometimes they'd ask me to tell a story and I would just make up some story on the spot. I wish I recorded them because almost mm. always I was able to actually have an arc and a story arc and then finish mm. it with some conclusion yeah. without pre-planning at all, just kind of impromptu. Yes. I think is I don't know how I, I don't know how that was done. And maybe it was just like I was really tired because I had little kids and it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's something so special about that. I mean, we got that from our dad as well, that storytelling piece. And I remember uh, I had a continuing story I did with my kids. They were called the Rodrigo stories. And I remembered when they stopped being easy. It was weird. It was like there was something in the 
in the relationship with the young child that drew that out of me in a way that uh, felt like it dried up when they reached a certain age. (laughs) I totally know what you're talking about. There's something about them being like, cool, what's next? And being excited about it. And just anything you said was fine. And that was the world you were creating. And it was good. And then if it was kind of silly, or I remember like messing up on names all the time. I'd be like, and then, oh, what was the bug's name? And then one of the kids would say, I'm like, right. And then I'd keep going. And it was kind of like a collaborative experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Spending time with, I definitely miss young kids. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to have that ache of like, oh, when do the grandkids come? And our kids are not ready for that. I'm not saying that. But yours is the oldest, so. I know. Well, he's, he may be least likely to procreate, too. <laughs> I, this generation might be the least likely to procreate. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Cora was over recently for uh, right after Christmas, and she was talking about future. The way she talked about the future was not the way that we talked about the future at 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Wow, that was a full hour. Yeah. See if anyone listens. If you're listening and you're enjoying <laughs> this, please do reach out. Let me know. I'm Lyle at Troxel.com if you want to send me email or I'm all over the socials. And Adri isn't, but I'll readdress <laughs> stuff to her if necessary. Thank you so much for listening. And Adri, thank you so much for doing this. Mm. Talk to you soon. Pleasure. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lunch with Lyle. There'll be another episode every day of January. Woohoo! If you have any feedback, please do reach out to me. You can email me, lyle at troxel.com. That's T-R-O-X-E-L-L.com. If you're curious about my other podcasts, just go to troxel.com and take a look at what those are. And if you do want to just do a quick, hey, please feel free to write a review on iTunes or just hit me up on Twitter. I'm Lyle, L-Y-L-E, on Twitter. And a little thumbs up or hello would be lovely and appreciated. Thanks so much for listening. But then, and now I'm really self-conscious about the noises I make with my mouth now that you said that. Don't worry about it. No, please. It's fine. As long as we don't talk about it, no one will think about it. (laughs) Whoops. Oops.